All right. Hello. Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to the LSE. Uh, my name is Miriam Sorace, and I'm an LSE fellow in European politics at the European Institute. And I will be chairing this year's LEX annual lecture. Uh, this lecture will be on the very topical issue of anti-system politics. Uh, and will be delivered by distinguished scholar of electoral and party politics, Dr. Jonathan Hopkin. Before we start, I just need to remind you of some practical issues. Um, first of all, there is a Twitter handle. Uh, we're all social. Uh, please use Twitter. Please follow the event on Twitter. The handle is hashtag LSE Europe. Um, the event will proceed as follows. Uh, there's going to be a 30, 40 minutes presentation by our speaker. Uh, 45 minutes um, roughly for Q&A from you, from the audience. Um, the event is uh, recorded and barring technical difficulties, um, it will be uploaded as a podcast in the coming days. So when you will be asking questions, just make sure that your microphone is uh, close to you. Um, and as usual, make sure that your mobile phones are on silent. Um, so now, let me introduce the event and, and our speaker. This event is organized by the European Institute, which is a leading department in the research and teaching of European politics, uh, history, uh, economy, and society. Today's annual lecture marks the 10th anniversary of the LSE's Europe in Question series, um, LEX in short. Um, in 2009, the European Institute established LEX with the aim to promote high-quality interdisciplinary research on current academic and policy debates concerning the future of the European Union and its crisis. The series has brought together LSE and visiting academics from the fields of law, political science, international relations, social policy, political theory, and economics. To date, it has produced over 100 excellent discussion papers on Europe, which are fully available online, so do take advantage. Uh, LEX also hosts annual lectures, and for its 10th year anniversary, the topic is fittingly anti-system politics. As you may know, uh, we recently had European Parliament elections, and they unveiled interesting trends that are very relevant uh, to what we will be discussing today. First, uh, it emerged that voting for traditional centre-left and centre-right parties is in decline, as the two mainstream parties in the European Parliament failed for the first time to get a majority. Secondly, uh, populist radical right parties gained their highest seat share ever, even though their success was uneven and below expectations. Finally, liberals and greens campaigning on a clear EU reform and supranational democracy message made outstanding electoral gains, which will make them kingmakers or queenmakers, uh, for that matter, because Margaret Versager is a potential candidate, in EU top job appointments. The political landscape in Europe is truly changing, as demonstrated by these past elections, but also by populists increasingly gaining executive powers in domestic governments, by populist messages increasingly being accommodated by mainstream parties, and on the other side, by liberal and green parties making important electoral gains. Compatibly with these developments, scholars are showing um, that the class-based cleavage that has conventionally shaped our party system is being ousted by a global protectionist one. And these developments are at the heart of what Dr. Hopkin will discuss tonight. Jonathan Hopkin was awarded his doctorate in social and political sciences from the European University Institute in 1995 and has held lectureships at the universities of Bradford, Durham, 
and Birmingham before joining LSE in 2004. He has held various visiting positions in Spain, Italy, and the United States, and is also an associate fellow of the Johns Hopkins University in Bologna in Italy. His research has mostly focused on parties and elections in Western Europe, and specifically Italy, Spain, and the UK, with particular attention to corruption, political finance, and territorial politics. He is the author of Party Formation and Democratic Transition in Spain, and has published in a range of journals, including the European Journal of Political Research, Governance, Party Politics, the Review of International Political Economy, and West European Politics. His current research focuses on the emergence of party cartels in advanced democracies and the relationship between partisan politics, income inequality, and welfare state change. In his upcoming book, to be published in March 2020, he discusses the growth of anti-system movements and the transformation of political cleavages in the rich democracies and applies his analytical framework to events like the election of Donald Trump to the US presidency and the United Kingdom's vote to leave the European Union, the elephant in the room. In his book, he argues that these tumultuous political developments are a consequence of a longer-term crisis of market liberalism, resulting from the abandonment of the post-war model of egalitarian capitalism in the 70s. He argues that this shift entailed weakening the democratic process in favor of an opaque technocratic form of governance that allows voters little opportunity to influence politics. With the financial crisis of the 2000s, these arrangements became unsustainable, as incumbent politicians were unable to provide solutions to economic hardship. Electorates demanded, demanded change, and this change, according to his thesis, had to come from outside the system. So without much further ado, Dr. Hopkins, the floor is yours. <laughs> right, okay, well, uh, thanks, thanks Miriam. Thanks very much to the European Institute for the uh, invitation to give this lecture. It's a great honor, and I'm delighted to be able to do that. And thanks to you all for being here when there are so many um, probably more fun things to do on a balmy spring evening in London. Um, so, um, this is kind of a book talk, but I have to say, even though we have a book cover, the book is not yet published, um, due to my delay in completing it. It's due to be coming out next year. Um, but what I'm going to do in this talk is give you an idea of what will be in the book when it, when it finally comes out. So, as Miriam has been hinting, um, what I'm interested in is the rise of uh, political parties that I describe as anti-system parties, that are those that are kind of emerging on both the right and the left of the established or mainstream um, uh, governing parties in, in, in Western countries. Um, and I'm arguing that this is um, the outcome of kind of two broad, quite long-term um, trends in our politics. One is the way in which um, the market system has generated increasing inequality and economic insecurity in Western countries. Um, and um, I'm going to argue that that is key to the rise of these parties. But also that um, connected to this, we've seen a kind of um, uh, fragilizing, if you like, weakening of political party systems in the rich democracies, um, even prior to the financial crisis of the late late 2000s. And so this you know, terrible combination of an increasingly insecure uh, population hit by a financial crisis and with a system of political representation that's not working has uh, provided uh, a, a you know, very fertile terrain for, for anti-system politics. So uh, what does the book actually do? Um, I kind of set in the context of the 
quite a, um, a long history of conflict between democracy and capitalism. So you know, I, I, in the 1990s, after the collapse of, uh, uh, of, of, of uh, Soviet communism and, you know, George Bush Sr. talked about a new world order, we had this idea that democracy and capitalism were kind of natural bedfellows, that they, they work together uh, um, nicely and coherently, but actually there's a very long history of democracy and, and capitalism being in collision. And, um, and the book kind of, the first chapter of the book, sets, sets out that historical uh, context. And then I start to look at what's been happening in party systems in 21 democracies, most of them in Western Europe. So this is a talk about Europe, but of course it does kind of affect other countries outside Europe, including the US and perhaps shortly the UK. We're leaving the European Union, maybe, but, but not Europe. But, but anyway, it's, uh, the, most of the countries I'm interested in uh, are, are in Europe and the European Union. And um, after this comparative analysis, I look through a bunch of uh, case studies. So I look at the US, obviously, the election of Trump, but also the rise of Bernie Sanders. I look at the UK, Brexit obviously being a key theme, but also the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and indeed uh, the Scottish uh, National Party and other forces which are seeking to overturn kind of established politics. And then I look uh, at the Eurozone and in particular the way in which the Euro crisis has affected the countries of Southern Europe, um, especially Spain and Italy. So uh, what is it exactly I'm talking about? What is this anti-system politics? of which I speak. Um, so I'm going to go uh, uh, back to one of the masters of comparative politics, Giovanni Sartori, and he uh, described uh, um, anti-system politics in his classic book, Parties and Party Systems, as um, that kind of politics which is against the system uh, and seeks to undermine the legitimacy of the regime it opposes. So it's going beyond just being opposed to a government. Um, obviously, in the kind of to and fro of electoral politics, you get government and opposition, you get people railing against uh, rival parties. But what makes anti-system parties different is that they don't only uh, oppose the, the government, but they oppose the system of government. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that system? Because Sartori was writing in the 60s and 70s, and his main concern was the consolidation of liberal democracy in uh, especially Western Europe after the Second World War, and he was writing as an Italian who'd actually, perhaps one of the reasons he was so smart was that he spent, I think, up to about two years locked away in a loft in Florence during, uh, uh, during the war and spent all that time reading Hegel, apparently. <laughs> uh, and so he had a lot of time to, to think about concepts. And his idea, he, he obviously was very concerned about the consolidation of democracy and saw the strength of communism, but also the legacy of fascism as being big threats to that in Italy. Now, what I'm talking about now, although I'm very worried about some things happening, is not really a fear that democracy itself will collapse, although I'm not complacent about that. But actually, the system that I think is threatened by these anti-system forces is, is what we could broadly describe as this neoliberal, technocratic way of governing the economy. So uh, our political parties, which used to compete over quite fundamental philosophical differences, um, have come over the past two or three decades to not really compete over these fundamental questions, but instead compete over who is the prettiest and most efficient uh, manager of what is effectively a neoliberal system. That's not to say that there are no differences between the mainstream parties, but I'm suggesting that differences have been kind of uh, very, very much uh, reduced. And certainly nobody's talking about fundamentally 
changing the system, which is why there is now a space for these anti-system parties that are saying, no, actually, we're not going to put up with globalization, we're not going to put up with the euro, we're not going to put up with deficit targets, uh, uh, and, and if you like political correctness, um, we're going to change everything, we're going to completely undermine the system. And this was already happening before the financial crisis of the late 2000s, but uh, that crisis really accelerated uh, the process. Now, what I should say, uh, uh, and I'm not going to talk a huge amount about that, there's um, more in the book, obviously, I'm trying to sell you a book here. Uh, you're going to be patient, but uh, I would like you to buy it eventually. Um, I'm not talking about populism as such. A lot of the time, what I say is pretty much referring to the things that most people in the public debate, but also actually in a lot of academia refer to as populism. But I don't like the term for reasons that, if you're interested in knowing why, we can talk about that more in, in QEA. But the Q&A, but there's a lot of uh, problems with the, with the concept, but also implications that I'd rather avoid. So, anti-system politics. Um, where does it come from? Well, it comes, first of all, from the fact that the system, the sort of established party systems that we see in the rich democracies, kind of stopped performing this function of giving voters a choice. So whichever model of democracy you subscribe to, um, there is an idea that elections and casting votes should be kind of meaningful, that they might lead to some change in policy. But what we actually saw over the post-war period is what was quite a large gap between rival political parties in Western countries narrowed so that ultimately the range of political options on offer at election time was really not so different. So this uh, chart is from um, the Manifestos Project. We can talk about the details of that more if you're interested later on. But what you should know is that this basically charts party positions on a left-right scale over time. Um, so zero would be a neutral position. Uh, a, a negative number would be a left-wing position. Positive number would be a right-wing position. And what you see is that the gap between political parties at the start of the post-war period was quite a lot wider than it subsequently became. Um, these measures are not perfect, by the way. There's a whole lot of problems with them. But I think they're intuitive. They make some kind of sense that political parties and the parties that I've charted here, these are averages for party families. So liberal, social democratic, Christian democratic, and conservative, what we would call the kind of mainstream parties. Over time, they, they really stop competing on fundamental questions. And really, um, you know, this can be exaggerated, but um, there's this notion that ultimately they're all pretty much saying the same thing that they formed a kind of oligopoly or cartel. They're not really competing anymore. Of course, they do compete. They, they want more power. They want to get power off each other. But what they don't necessarily want to do is completely change society, and they certainly don't want to overturn the sort of fundamentals of economic policy. So we have this narrowing of the range of choice. Um, now, what do anti-system parties do? So these are kind of what, if you like, the system parties or the mainstream establishment uh, or cartel parties. Um, what do uh, anti-system st parties stand for? Well, they stand for a wider range of options. So this chart, and by the way, there's not too many of these charts, so if you don't like lo looking, at, uh, uh, looking at charts, there's not so much of it. Uh, what this does is present similar kind of data about party positions, but it, this, in, in, in this case, at one point in time. So basically the most recent data I could find. And these scatter plots 
uh, reflects the positions of two types of parties on a left-right scale, but on two dimensions. So um, on the horizontal axis, I have the left-right scale on economic policy. So parties here, more left-wing. Parties here, more right-wing on economics, so more liberal. Um, And on the vertical axis, we have what we could call the sort of uh, social-cultural dimension of competition. So parties towards the bottom here are uh, a kind of progressive, liberal, if you like, position on social-cultural issues. And parties uh, higher up would be in a more sort of social authoritarian, socially conservative position. So basically... Further to the right, on the bottom dimension, you want to privatize everything. You want to cut taxes, cut welfare. Um, Closer to this side, the opposite, you probably want more welfare, higher taxes, more market regulation. And on the vertical axis, towards the bottom, you're probably uh, very concerned with gender gender inequalities, uh, protecting the environment, these kind of issues. Towards the top, you probably like the idea of the death penalty, um, locking up migrants, that kind of thing. Okay, so we have two groups of parties here. So on the left-hand chart, we have what we could call the establishment parties. And you can see they're kind of clustered around a kind of broadly centrist, center-left-ish position. By the way, we could get into this. I don't really buy the idea that the median point is really so left-wing in current politics. But anyway, this is... uh, uh, This is data coming from expert surveys of political scientists who can be wrong. Um, But what you can see is that they're fairly clustered around a broadly central position on both of these dimensions. And um, uh, on the economic policy dimension, there's not a a, a huge uh, range. Uh, The anti-system parties, you can see generally, for the most part, and each one of these dots represents the position of one of these parties. They're kind of occupying, for the most part, different positions. They're filling in, they're they're occupying these gaps that are left by the establishment parties. So at the risk of uh, moving too far away in the microphone, these are kind of the right-wing populist, if you like, parties that that we hear about a lot, the Sweden Democrats, the AfD in Germany and so on. And down here we have the kind of left anti-system parties like Podemos in Spain, like, if you like, probably Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, And they're occupying a much more left-wing position. So you can see that there are distinctive policies being offered by by these parties. So why uh, are these parties coming about? Why are we not satisfied with uh, these uh, social democratic, liberal, conservative, Christian democratic parties that have been governing uh, for most of the post-war period? What's going on? Uh, Well... As I was just suggesting, with the help of these charts, there's been a kind of convergence of established political parties on a set of policies which we could broadly describe as market liberal. Um, We can talk about what that means uh, um, a little bit more later on. Uh, But the fact is that around big economic policy issues, there's not a whole lot of difference between the mainstream parties. And this leads to a demand for new alternatives, especially when people perceive that the economy is not going well, right? Why would you accept a narrow range of options when things are not going well? Further, we can argue that because the policies that have been followed have tended to result in rising inequality, and inequality has been rising pretty much across the Western world for the last 30 years or so, um, this leads to an increase in social tension and especially demands for redistribution from people who lose out from that shift in the distribution of income. Further, 
we had on the back of this trend towards rising inequality a huge financial crisis at the end of the uh, uh, first decade of, of this century. And financial crises are well, well um, it's been well established in uh, the historical literature that they tend to create social, a sense of social insecurity and distributional conflict. So basically, uh, what I'm saying here is that it's kind of all about economics. Ultimately, if we try to understand why anti-system parties seem to be doing better, it's uh, largely to do with the fact that on economic policy issues, the mainstream parties are just not doing their job. The, the policies, they're not really competing on policy, but worse, the policies that they've converged on don't work for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people are left out. Uh, of um, um, economic growth. And in fact, in the last decade or so in most countries, economic growth has been pretty feeble at any rate. Now, this is not necessarily a completely original position. There are plenty of people out there who will emphasize the effect of crisis and inequality on uh, changes in our politics, but there's a huge amount of discussion about the role of cultural change and immigration. And essentially, this idea that, yeah, oh, wow, we look, the AfD in Germany, um, these very far-right people, and they're worried about Islam, and they don't like migration, and they're getting more and more votes. What's going on? We're all becoming racist. We're all becoming Nazis. This is incredibly scary. Now, of course, it's, it is scary that right-wing, uh, far-right parties are doing so well, but it's not the only thing that's going on, and it's not necessarily solely to do with migration, the refugee crisis, terrorism, and broad questions of cultural change. Okay, uh, now, how do, on what basis am I making this claim? Well, if we look at the data, uh, there's been a big increase in electoral instability and anti-system voting after the financial crisis. Not only that, um, inequality at the country level is a pretty good predictor of how many votes anti-system parties are getting. Further, the worse the financial crisis your country had, uh, the more likely you are to have high levels of inequality and high levels of anti-system voting. And this in particularly maps on to a split between countries uh, that have suffered most because they are heavily indebted. They're countries that run trade deficits and therefore are reliant on borrowing from outside uh, to maintain consumption. And uh, on top of that, we can see that anti-system parties, for the most part, although they talk about lots of things, and especially on the right, they talk a lot about immigration, but, there are, but they are mostly, uh, both from left and right, uh, invoking interventionist measures of various kinds to protect society from the instability and, uh, and, th and economic threats of um, poorly regulated markets. So... Trump talks about protecting American workers from Chinese competition. Um, you have um, Southern European parties demanding uh, help from Northern European countries to pay off their debts. You have demands for countries in big trouble to run higher deficits to try and stimulate demand and, and, and so on. Or ending the case of Britain, of course. We're going to leave the European Union. That will solve all of our economic problems. Okay, here's some data. I promise there wouldn't be too much more of this, but here, here is some. This one I can deal with pretty quickly. Electoral volatility. Um, how do we know that people are unhappy about the mainstream parties? Well, we can measure it by looking at how frequently people change their votes. Uh, so it used to be, when I started studying politics, um, 
that political parties were fairly stable organizations with, with kind of loyal bases of support. And so they could wheel out, you know, reliably the same bunch of voters every election, and they would try and win over some of the more floating voters uh, uh, to, to, to seal the win. But what we see is that over the post-war war period, there's been a trend towards rising volatility, which means vote switching. More and more voters are switching their vote from one election to the next. They're less loyal to political parties. And what you can see, especially towards the uh, last decade and, uh, or, or so, is a big increase in volatility. Each of these dots represents the total number of voters who switch their vote between one election and the next in um, one of these uh, 21 democracies. And you can see it perks up towards the end. And there are very few cases of low volatility. Not only are people changing their votes, but then, you know, volatility could, volatility could just mean, oh, I voted Labour last time, they suck, I'm going to vote Conservative this time, oh, wow, they suck too, um, what do I do? Um, well, part, people start voting for new parties or parties that are outside the mainstream. They don't restrict their choice to these mainstream parties. So this anti-system voting uh, that I've been describing, the vote for these kind of anti-system right and left parties, has also been increasing. So this is data from 1989 onwards. And you can see, although it's kind of steadily rising through the period, you have some really, really high scores in uh, the post-financial crisis period. Um, so the crisis had an effect on political stability. Who knew? Um, I think it's kind of obvious if you've been paying attention over the last 10 years. And, and this is kind of one of the bases on which I'm frustrated by this emphasis on immigration, as if we didn't have immigration 10 years ago uh, when politics was stable. You know, if you want to explain why things change, you don't use a constant to explain it. We've always had immigration. And what's more, you know, I think a lot of people have always been racist or at the very least a little bit worried about having too many people around. I have this feeling when I walk around Kingsway and, the, you know, and there's, there's no room on the pavement and there are Boris bikes everywhere, it's crazy. So maybe that's just the sign I'm getting old. Um, so anti-system voting is rising, but if you sort of stuck to the kind of popular narrative, uh, you could be mistaken for thinking that this is just the far right. Um, everybody's going racist, they're voting for far-right parties, and that means we should impose strict immigration curbs. But the thing is, actually, uh, the post-crisis period has been characterized especially by a big increase in voting for anti-system left parties. Okay? So we have Podemos in Spain, we have Syriza in Greece, we have the uh, Bloco de Esquerra in Portugal, and so on and so on. And of course, in Britain, we have our own homegrown example, which is the Labour Party, which used to be a very centrist party under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, um, suddenly lurched to the left, voting for Jeremy Corbyn. And I guess we're all used to this uh, idea now, but remember four years ago, how many people predicted that Jeremy Corbyn was going to be the next seat of the Labour Party after the 2015 election? Even Jeremy Corbyn uh, was um, rather taken aback by it. So, um, so something's happening, and it's not just about racism, it's not just about voting for the far right, it's about voting for parties which are against the system in general. Now, what predicts uh, uh, the, uh, um, the level of anti-system voting? Well, inequality does a pretty good job of it. It turns out that if we take um, the high watermark of anti-system voting in uh, the recent period, and sum up how many people have voted against the system, um, it correlates um, with uh, levels of inequality. 
Um, it's not a perfect correlation, but it would be crazy if it was. There's quite a strong connection. Countries with very high levels of anti-system voting are countries which also have high levels of inequality. Um, and funnily enough, these same countries tend to have had a really bad time of things after 2008. There is also a correlation, not quite as strong, a correlation between the impact of the crisis, and I've measured this through median income change, so what has happened to average incomes in these countries in the uh, few years after the financial crisis, as you can see, is actually a chunk of people. So this, is, this would be zero. This is stagnant income. Uh, uh, after the crisis, which is bad enough. But you can see for a bunch of countries, it's actually been negative. And even the countries where it's been positive, it's not been that good. Uh, so um, countries with the worst income growth performance after the crisis have had the highest anti-system vote. Um, so uh, what's going on here? Well, um, been, there's been a huge economic shock to our society, something that we've not really been, been used to. It's certainly not happened before in my lifetime or indeed in my parents' lifetime. You have to go back to the 1930s to see as bad an economic performance. Of course, living standards are higher now, but that doesn't mean that people don't get upset when their incomes are stagnating or even declining over a long period. Um, but um, people react to this crisis in different ways. So not everybody responds to the crisis by voting for a far-right party that wants to kick the immigrants out. Some people vote for left-wing parties who are not bothered at all about immigrants, but actually what they do want to do is kick the bankers out. Or they want to tax the bankers, or they simply want to let deficits rip and spend more money and reverse austerity measures. Um, now, these parties perform... Uh, differentially well in different places, right, as you might expect. The anti-system left doesn't mobilize around the anti-migration message, and yet it's grown rapidly after the crisis. Migration obviously can't explain that. But what's more, even voting for anti-system right parties for the far right is generally strongest in areas of low migration. So if it's about migration, why are people not voting massively for far right parties in London? London's full of migrants, okay? And yet the Brexit party uh, got 20%, scary <laughs> that it could even get 20%, but polled far less well in London uh, than, in, um, than in the rest of the country. And in fact, um, you know, in, uh, the areas which have given strongest support for the far right in Europe have been tended to be places that are depopulating. They're not attracting migrants, they're actually losing their young people. Go to Hartlepool, you know, there's no clamor uh, for people to go and live in, in, in Hartlepool. Okay, no reason I would pick on Hartlepool there, by the way. Uh, okay, so as I said before, the places affected most by the refugee crisis are not the places that have been voting for the far right. Greece, uh, Spain, southern Italy, these are not the places where the far right has done well. What we do see is that uh, anti-system right voters are drawn from not only economically declining regions, but also from the social groups that are most affected by the crisis particularly less educated, uh, um, and especially men, in areas of economic decline. Um, so really, there's a, an economic decline and an economic shock story going on here. Okay, so um, why exactly is it that some countries have a, a strong uh, anti-system vote for the left and some countries have a strong anti-system vote for the right? Well, that's because the different appeals these parties make appeal to different kinds of people, and different kinds of people don't always do as well in different countries, okay? So 
the appeal of the anti-system rights more likely to succeed amongst older, less educated voters. Similarly, the left anti-system is more popular amongst younger voters, including the more educated ones. And so we know that younger generations are, are more likely to be relaxed about immigration and more likely to have socially liberal attitudes, and the older generations the opposite. This is quite well documented by Norris and Engelhardt's book, Cultural uh, Shift. Um, so why is it that in some countries the, the right does better and in other countries the left does better? Well, um, I think it's something to do with the way in which not only the crisis has hit different countries differently, but different countries have different institutions for dealing with crises, and this means that the effects of the crisis filter through into different parts of the population uh, in different ways. So we know uh, that countries have different kinds of welfare states. The Swedish welfare state is more generous and more extensive than the British welfare state. Welfare states in southern Europe, for example, are very generous in some areas, but extremely ungenerous in others. So this actually goes some of the way to explaining why different groups are more likely to be mobilized by an anti-system vote in different countries. Um, in the English-speaking English countries, UK and the US are my cases, uh, the welfare state doesn't really protect people all that much. Inequality is very high, people are very exposed to the crisis. That means there's a huge pool of voters who are potentially worried by their economic situation and therefore able to be mobilized by an anti-system party. In Northern Europe, the welfare states are much more generous, and this means that uh, there is a smaller pool of voters who are likely to vote for an anti-system party. But actually, it turns out that some of the people who feel that they've done relatively less well in the recent period are some of these uh, groups of older, less qualified uh, workers who have been hit hard by some welfare state changes in countries like Sweden and Germany. Finally, in Southern Europe, Southern European welfare states are are what we call dualistic welfare states. Basically, the bottom line is young people really don't get much help at all, except from their families. Old people are extremely well catered for with quite generous pension arrangements. So this means that the kind of older, less educated parts of the population that in Northern Europe are more open to be mobilized by anti-system appeal, in Southern Europe they're not. Hey presto, that's why uh, you don't have such a strong far-right vote in most Southern uh, countries, and that is the crux of my argument, which I better hurry and conclude since we're running out of time. Okay, this is basically my map of how anti-system politics varies. Um, Credit to countries with very strong welfare states, I'm talking here particularly of uh, Northern Europe, are more likely to have right-wing anti-system parties opposed to immigration and opposed to bailouts of uh, profligate Southern Europeans. Um, the debtor countries, um, and here we're talking about my cases in Southern Europe and in the UK and the US, both of which are countries that have run big trade deficits and continue to do so, um, have different kinds of anti-system voting because they have different welfare states. Essentially, on the right there, the welfare state is so weak that you can have anti-system parties on the right and on the left. So we have uh, Trump in the US and Brexit in the UK. I'm putting Brexit down here as largely a right-wing movement, uh, but also you have left-wing anti-austerity movements. So the rise of Corbyn, the rise of the Scottish nationalists in, in, in Scotland, and the rise of Sanders and people like Ocasio-Cortez in, in the US. And the middle column here is uh, my southern countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, 
And there you see, although Italy is a bit of an exception here with a very strong, especially recently, performance for the far-right uh, Northern League, um, the strongest anti-system performances have been from left-wing parties, Podemos, Syriza, and the Five Stars Movement. Um, okay, um, so I'd better wrap up. Um, and here is um, the killer chart of my book. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to sell this idea of a, the, the, the crocodile chart, and it comes from this, right? <laughs> Um, don't you think? It works, right? It's, it's not just my imagination. Okay. So what we can see is that um, the economic story explains not only the extent of anti-system voting, but the type. Because what we see here is that the blue line is right-wing parties in these um, strong welfare state creditor countries Yes, they've grown since the crisis, but they were already stronger before um, because the crisis didn't hit them quite so hard as some of the southern countries. The really big rise in anti-system voting you see after the crisis is the left-wing anti-system parties in debtor countries. Now you see this red line jumping up immediately after the financial crisis. Um, left-wing anti-system parties in creditor countries are pretty much flatlined, and right-wing uh, anti-system parties in the debtor countries um, have also pretty much flatlined. Um, so on average, the big thing that seems to be going on is that creditor countries with good welfare states um, tend to vote for the anti-system right and debtor countries with um, dualistic welfare states in particular for the anti-system left. Okay, there's my crocodile. Um, and um, I have a bunch of cases that we can talk about in Q&A, uh, if you like, but I'd just better skip to the conclusion, which is that, you know, economic insecurity and inequality, which is something that didn't start yesterday, has been going on for some time, but especially accelerated with the financial crisis, is a pretty much a predictor of how successful anti-system uh, anti parties are in different countries. The bigger the damage of economic change to society, the more likely it is you're going to have conflictual, unstable politics. And inequality in the depths of the crisis are pretty good predictors of that. Um, and then you have this north-south split in Europe, creditor countries, Germany, Denmark, and so on, going to the right, debtor countries, Greece, Spain, Portugal, and in part Italy going to the left. And the UK and the US going both ways, which is why our politics is so crazy at the moment. Look at the European election results if you're in any doubt about the fact that the mainstream uh, center in Britain um, is um, not prospering in this situation. Change UK, I do not predict, is going to uh, do a Macron. Um, so I think I'll stop there because I probably used up all of my time, and um, I look forward to your questions. So thank you uh, so much for this very insightful presentation. Um, now I'm going to take advantage of my role as chair to ask uh, quick questions, hopefully. Um, one that I was interested in is the uh, implications for this debate. I know that you don't like the populist word. Um, you might also talk a little bit about that. But in that literature, there is this debate between those that say, oh, populism is absolutely a threat and a danger to our democracy, and others that would say, no, it's actually a corrective, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, where would you place yourself in that debate, and are 
are these anti-system parties a corrective? I mean, the Five Star Movement keeps saying, if you were doing your job, we wouldn't be here to the mainstream parties, right? And uh, we are a force of good. Uh, where do you stand on that? Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks that we should just all carry on voting for the centrist parties. It's pretty clear that the way in which um, Western countries have been governed over the last couple of decades has led to all sorts of massive policy failures. And, you know, sitting here in the comfort of LSE, in the comfort of one of the richest cities in Europe and indeed the world, it's easy to forget that this crisis has ruined millions of lives, right? So the idea that we could just go on as usual with maybe a tweak here and a tweak there, I think, uh, is fanciful. And the idea that we could kind of close off avenues for protest is, is deeply dangerous, not only because it maybe leads to even more violent kinds of protests, but also because it would be unfair to not listen to the, the, the hurt and suffering that's out there. On the other hand, I'm really worried by some of the <laughs> anti-system forces that are doing well. So I guess the simple answer to this is that I want the anti-system parties I like to uh, get lots of votes. Um, and those are, generally speaking, the ones on the left. And um, I'm really very worried about anti-system parties that seek to scapegoat particular groups, especially migrants, refugees, and so on, um, as a way of pretending they're dealing with the crisis. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly a threat, but it's also a necessary part of our politics in a period where policy failure is all around us. So populists on the left have understood this, that the cause was actually economic, whereas those on the right are peddling this cultural explanation that you don't think is the correct one, just to gather votes. Yeah, although there is a kind of nuance to that, which is that the anti-system right isn't all about just migration. I mean, that's part of, obviously, mm. that's what they spend most of the time talking about and which seems to get, gain the most traction. But there is also a discourse about there, especially in uh, the Trump presidency, about free trade and about the exposure of Western countries to uh, competition um, from, you know, rapidly growing low-wage uh, countries, although not perhaps for much longer, like, like China, right? So there is a story there that should we have really thrown open our markets to uh, competition from countries that were going to decimate some in industries and some parts of, of, of our economy. Um, you know, there is an economic story there, and that economic story needs, needs to, be, to be taken seriously. Uh, but as, in terms of the cultural argument, I think the fact is that, you know, there's no reversing the cultural changes that have happened, and there's no reversing migration. So you can maybe argue about how much you're going to restrict migration in the future, but looking at the demographics of the rich world, and especially Europe, you know, there is no, there's no hope that you could actually you know, freeze our societies in what they looked like in the 1960s and go on from there. And finally, on my end, I mean, I have a million questions, but I will open more democratically to Q&A. Um, some would say, you know, okay, um, what you're saying on, on the immigration, it's, uh, you know, you cannot, it, this is the real world, this is what's happening, and it will not, you cannot stop it. Um, but some would say also on the economic end, this is also true. Um, is it, so is it really this neoliberalism that is causing all this, which started in the 80s, or is it uh, the fundamental change in economic production, which is also unstoppable to some extent, like the co mm -hmm. communication revolution, the transport revolution? And is it then that um, it's really the crisis that has 
widen the gap between winners and losers, and then we're seeing more of that. It's not that we didn't see anti-system before, yeah. it's just we're seeing it, but it's because of a crisis. It's not necessarily neoliberalism, it's just economic restructuring. Where, what would you yeah. respond to that? So clearly there are other things going on. Technological change is destroying some kinds of jobs, and there's no point in trying to protect jobs that are going to be made, made obsolete. Of course you do an awful lot more than most countries have been doing to provide new ways of people earning a living and provide new ways of regions earning a living. Because one of the big problems we face is the fact that increasingly we have an economy where a lot of the value added is concentrated in really, really quite small areas, central London being you know, one of the most eloquent examples of that, uh, which in itself creates all kinds of other problems because there's this huge pressure of people trying to move to London where all the economic activity is going on, creating pressures within London and all kinds of problems with house prices and so on. But on the other hand, regions where there's basically nothing, nothing happening. Now, some of those developments are things that we really can't, we, we, we can't turn back the clock Somebody did mention reopening coal mines, I think, the other day, and I've forgotten who that was, but probably that is not the way to revive some of the kind of post-industrial uh, regions that um, are having a hard time. But there needs to be some form of political intervention to manage economic change, sometimes slowing it down, sometimes simply adapting to it and helping people through it. What we've had at the moment is, yeah, globalization has happened, there's nothing we can do about it, and your job just went to China. Oh, um, there isn't a welfare state either because the same people who opened up the markets also destroyed the welfare state. Clearly, that is just asking for trouble, and I'm, if anything, the surprise is that it took people so long to start rebelling against it. Um, okay, so I'll now open for um, Q&A. Um, so we have a question at the front here, the person with the blue. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be taking it by groups of three, yeah? And then one here, and then the man. There. Thank you. Wonderful talk. Now, you mentioned the right to immigration. What I think I see is that these right-wing political leaders throughout the world are linking up themselves like the left, like... What is Victor Irwin in Hungary? What is Bolsonaro in Brazil? Donald Trump and Berlusconi. So that though they talk about restricted immigration, they themselves and Marine Le Pen in France link up with their own international connections like the left. I wonder if you could say, talk about the significance of that in terms of domestic and global politics. Yeah, three at a time. One of the agents for social cohesion in European countries since the end of the Second World War has been the growth or provision of a welfare state. Now, with the growing international competition from Asia and other places, mainstream political parties simply cannot afford the welfare state anymore as it has existed until recently. How much will this be a disincentive for people to support the mainstream parties and will, spur, and will serve as an, um, an agent for the growth of political extremism. Thank you. And, yeah, the man with the glasses over there. Hi, Jonathan. Um, I hesitate to ask this question in a European uh, Institute talk, but one of the things that actually needs 
that is getting in the way is the structure of the European Union, especially in terms of the structures of creditors and debtors and the ways in which, um, especially in the Eurozone, but also more than that, the idea of all of those decisions have been gone up to uh, sort of a supranational level, whereas all of this politics is mostly happening at the national level. So does that basically portend a, a, a radical or a necessity to radically reevaluate the sort of European Union project as a kind of a end of history, we've all, we're, we're all wonderfully technocratic in terms of go economic governance kind of project? Great, thank you. I think I'll go backwards. Um, great question um, about you know, whether the European Union is fit for purpose. Um, no, I don't think it is. Um, this is a big problem for those of us who are traumatized by the whole Brexit process. I'm, you know, I did my PhD at the European Univ University Institute, so I'm one of these hired guns for the European Union propaganda. Um, so it's very painful for me to see what's going on, but it's also true that the EU has uh, had all kinds of problems managing the crisis. And as Dan rightly points out, you know, if the politics is at the national level and the decisions are being made at the supranational level, and not only, they're being made at the supranational level uh, in a way which is at the very least not very transparent and at worst completely excluding uh, popular participation, then you can expect a, a good outcome. Um, about you know, what the EU should do to solve uh, uh, its, its growth problem is, a, is an argument for another day, and I see Valtraud and others here who uh, um, would have a lot to say about that. Um, but the point is that there needs to be some way in which the energy that has been generated within national political systems, in which we can see in these European Parliament elections the other day, it has to feed through into the policy debate. And at the current time, in you know, key areas of decision-making, most not notably the European Central Bank, which is by definition insulated from these pressures, it needs to take these things into account. It can't just expect to make decisions which could be right or wrong. I tend to believe that they're wrong. But even if they were right, there needs to be uh, popular involvement in those decision-makings. And to, 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 to not involve people is, is deeply dangerous. Um, I fundamentally disagree with the premise that the welfare state has become unaffordable. I think there are plenty of features of the welfare state which are inefficient and they're hangovers from a different time and which should be reformed and maybe will not because of various political roadblocks. But the idea that the welfare state is not affordable because of international competition is not borne out by the fact that some of the biggest successful exporting economies in Europe are the ones with the biggest welfare states, which is precisely why these creditor countries, the countries which are very successful in export markets, have been relatively insulated from, from the crisis because they also, not by accident, have very strong welfare states, but they have welfare states that are very effectively designed for dealing with the problems of a modern economy. So rather than just basically feathering the nests of certain not necessarily productive groups in society, they are actually doing a reasonably good job of uh, cushioning people from the effects of economic change whilst at the same time providing them with incentives to be productive. Um, so certainly I agree that the failure to have uh, an adequate welfare state which deals with these problems, the social and the economic problem at the same time, 
is part of the reason for, for the rise of anti-system parties. So there's clearly a connection um, between them. In terms of the cooperation between these far-right parties, I find that kind of deeply disturbing, but also historically fairly myopic because, you know, if you're a nationalist, you're a nationalist, right? You know, international cooperation is not really what we tend to believe is, is in the DNA of, of these nationalist parties. But, of course, what they're doing is they're seeing advantages uh, potentially through organization in the European Parliament and so on, but also through perhaps uh, connecting with international networks of political influence, funding, um, you know, uh, political marketing, marketing through social media and so on. And I think we're going to have to get used to the idea that politics has changed a bit. You know, political parties are no longer, you know, the, uh, um, the trade union branch mobilizing people for an election, the, you know, the social club, the, you know, the, the, the parish uh, um, organizations and so on. Political parties now, look at the Brexit party in the UK. What the hell is the Brexit Party? I mean, how many people are in the Brexit Party? Does the Brexit Party need more than a few dozen you know, people who know how to target Facebook ads at people and some candidates? Do they need any more than that? They have friends in newspapers. They have money. What else do you need to run a political party? Clearly, the international connection is part of what makes that a little bit disturbing, but just the very idea that you can run a party with you know, a few dozen people and a load of money is something which you know, really does subvert the idea of what democracy is supposed to be about, and you know, we have plenty of reason to be worried about that. Okay. So for the three questions, uh, okay, so the guy with the glasses, um, and then you have the woman with the scarf and the third person at the back with the blue shirt. Um, so, yeah, in su succession again. So one there, the first one up there, and then the woman there. And, yeah, yeah, perfect. On the, uh, on the European elections, would you describe the Liberal Democrats as an anti-system party because <laughs> they picked up a ton of votes from what you described as an anti-system party? Um, and if so, yeah, what, what, does that, what does that say about sort of the other system party's performance, which is, of course, Labour? You know, um, is, is, there, is there a reason for the inconsistency of their performance in that regard? Mm -hmm. Um, so my, my rather flippant question was uh, that first came to mind was how does your crocodile chart map onto Branko Milanovic's elephant chart? <laughs> and is that relevant in this case? Um, but my real question is around inequality, which is what the Milanovic chart is all about, really. And some recent research which shows that I mean, you, you provided a correlation between inequality and support for anti-system parties. There is research in inequality from the LSE Inequalities Institute, very recent Jonathan Mice, that shows that countries with high levels of inequality actually develop a very strong tolerance and acceptance of um, inequality and less support for redistribution, more support for you know, neoliberal um, free market economics. And the explanation is that they have a stronger belief in the notion of meritocracy. That, yes, they're just not working hard enough. You know, I mean, inequality, it's my fault. I'm not working hard enough. I'm suffering. So that meritocratic narrative is very strong in high inequality countries. So, you know, how does that jive with the support for, um, you know, anti-system parties? Sorry, finally me. So I was thinking to what... I was thinking would it be worth including 
parties like Vox and Golden Dawn in your Southern Europe far-right kind of slides. I know Golden Dawn was a bit more in the European sovereign debt crisis, but Vox is around a bit more. And I was wondering to what extent was there a lack of success or an instant slight resurgence now? How much of that is due to the Southern European countries' welfare states rather than, or how much is it more about kind of their past of dictatorships in the Southern European countries? And how much of that was like their toxicity? Whereas now you've got younger people who don't have a living memory of, of said times. So how does that fit in, really? Great, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, Tony, yeah. Um, antis, is the liberal, are the Liberal Democrats an anti system party? No, they're not. Um, and I suppose, um, I mean, they're, they're, if the system has become, oh, we've all got to do Brexit, then in that sense they are. But, but clearly that's not the kind of thing that, that, that I was thinking of. I mean, what has clearly happened here is that Brexit has become the be and all and end all of the debate, and people were I mean, I personally, um, I've voted Labour a lot in the past. So I voted Green this time because I don't like Labour's Brexit position. I think that you know, half the Labour electorate was in, in this quandary. Um, so it's not just the rise of anti-system parties. It's also the rise of kind of conflict between different positions. And in Britain, you have the kind of the Brexit uh, uh, debate um, just overcomes everything else. And we all have to align ourselves, especially in a European Parliament election we were not expecting to have a lot along those divides. But what it also speaks to is this volatility that I was describing, people shifting from one part to the other, desperately trying to find who the hell is going to help us out here and sort out all the problems we have. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to... I've had to sandwich, you know, very complex reality into a, a simple theory, and, and clearly uh, a lot of the time it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, but, you know, the, the overall pattern of instability is certainly consistent with, with uh, what, I'm, what I'm arguing. Uh, what is the connection with um, Branko Milanovic's elephant chart? Well, you know, I, I'm pursuing fame and fortune, and uh, I wanted to see, I'd see if some kind of um, animal-focused uh, graph could, could do it for me. Um, clearly, the whole inequality story is part of what's going on here because uh, Milanovic's chart, um, there was a co-author whose name I never remember, so we, we should remember it wasn't just Branko. Um, but, you know, it's this low growth of most of the kind of middle and lower uh, income groups in Western countries compared with not only the upper income groups in Western countries, but, um, but um, most uh, groups in the developing world as well. And so cl clearly there's a kind of global distributional conflict, conflict going on here, which is kind of implicit in a lot of the messages, especially of the uh, anti-system right parties. But... So on this point of whether inequality creates is, becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, um, yeah, the, there is a lot of evidence that, that it doesn't necessarily work, that the more there is inequality, the more societies sensibly come around to the idea that we should create institutions to narrow income gaps and create a more cohesive society. That's not really the way it works. And I think in the Trump vote, and to some extent in the Brexit vote too, what you can see here is there are a lot of people who can kind of see that there's a kind of economic injustice going on, but are not amenable to, what are the, to the kinds of politics which is favorable to redistribution, which is almost by definition a more left-wing politics, right? It's a politics about equality. Which parties are demanding equality? Not the parties of the anti-system right. Um, this is something that's a general problem in you know, trying to deal with inequality in our societies. Clearly, it's just got a lot worse now that 
distributional conflicts are over the crumbs, right? There's, there's very little to distribute, so the conflicts get more, more acute. Um, I have no answer to that except to try and argue that you know, there is a way of making these things better, and it's not uh, blaming everything on migrants. Um, talking of which, coming on to Vox and Golden Dawn, yeah, I mean, I, 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 ten, I try to emphasize less the role of anti-system parties in the right in Southern Europe, not because they don't exist, but that they just simply make so much less of an impact on the politics of certainly Spain, Greece, and Portugal than the parties of the anti-system left. The Italian case is a little bit more complex, so the League obviously has done very well in the recent uh, European elections. Um, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that part of what is going on here might be to do with the legacy of countries which only came out of uh, dictatorship in the 1970s. I'm sympathetic to that idea. And again, I can only sort of confess that what I'm trying to do is to take a complex reality with country specificities and try to tell a general story about it. But um, in the country case chapters, when the book comes out, uh, I hope I'm going to give due attention to those kind of historical nuances. Okay. Um, so the woman at the back, um, and then the man here with the orange shirt, and yeah, the man at the back with the green shirt. So first, yeah. Okay. Um, your conclusion is kind of alarming in the sense of more conflict is the... Re I'm here. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, your conclusion in the first line is about conflict, and it sounds like alarming, like more conflict is the result. But we know conflict is the essence of politics. So can we be, I, I think what you're trying to say is anti-system parties are not really the best institutions to mediate or to address conflict. So I guess this is why the conclusion is kind of alarming. But I would like to take your, uh, I would like to, um, your comment on a more hopeful um, conclusion. Because if, you know, conflict is the essence of politics, then, you know, we're back to politics instead of economics. So um, what is your take on that? Thank you. To, to what extent do you think the, the mainstream media, print and TV predominantly, understand the anti-system politics and, and the relevant parties? And to what extent does that actually make any difference at all to, to the impact of those parties? Um, quick one for me, perhaps building up on what the lady to the left was saying earlier. To draw upon the famous Clausewitz quote that war is a politics through other means, do you have a view on this basically getting physical? You've been using the word conflict recently a lot. Uh, as a student of history, you might say very briefly, are we in the 30s and is all about pop? Great questions, yeah. Um, I'll kind of maybe take the last one and the first one together because they speak to the same problem. I, I, I must admit there have been moments I've felt kind of alarmed at the fact that by taking a position in these political debates that I could even personally, you know, be in some way under threat. I guess it's pretty easy to find out where I work, right? Um, and I tweet and I say things that probably would annoy um, a lot of people out there, especially people voting for anti-system right parties, but not exclusively. I've had my share of Corbynite hatred as well. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, clearly politics, you're right, has to be about conflict, but 
conflict, which is a conflict of ideas and preferably not, uh, you know, actually involving physical violence. You know, it's easy to forget that we had an MP actually murdered during the EU referendum campaign. This is absolutely horrifying. However terrible I think, you know, our, our politics and, and however much our politicians may have failed over the years, that's certainly no reason to, to actually threaten their physical safety, obviously. And I think, you know, we, and in terms of the comparison with the 1930s, in the 1930s, people were starving, you know. I have to walk past homeless people every day on my way to work, and this is absolutely terrible. But there's no getting around the fact that for nearly all of us, life is so much better than it was uh, in, in the last few decades. But that doesn't mean that there aren't grounds for people getting angry about injustice. And, you know, it's one of the eternal problems of democracy. How can you channel that in a way that gets a vibrant political debate without people getting killed? I have no obvious answer to, to, to that, except to say that when, as I kind of tried to show in this chart about the cartel parties converging around a kind of same position, when you try to artificially suppress conflict, if there are grounds for people having strong differences of opinion, and especially if those grounds can be interpreted as some kind of injustice, then you can't suppress it. You have to let it express itself. And the whole art of democratic institution building is about trying to find ways for, for, for that to, to happen, uh, which is a good way of coming on to the question of the media, right? You know, I think the British media on the whole are pretty terrible. Um, I think that's probably the case in a lot of democracies. You know, we have massive failures to, to inform people, huge amount of propaganda. I can't bear to watch the, the TV news anymore. Um, I get my news from much more objective sources like friends of mine on Twitter, uh, <laughs> which, of course, has its own danger. But yeah, clearly the mainstream media or even the non-mainstream media can, can have a role in building up. Certain, I mean, so for instance, we're thinking about one of the reasons why I maybe over make, I make the case a bit too, uh, too strongly at times, but this idea that it's not really about migration is in part from the frustration that people who've never seen a refugee in their lives are terrified at the supposed invasion of Europe. You know, I spend a lot of time in Italy. Italy's just voted around a third of people voted for a party whose main argument is we're going to keep the refugees at. And you go to Italy, and certainly if you live in London, go to Italy, just about anywhere in Italy, especially in the smallish towns most people live in, there are very, very few people who don't look pretty much the same as your standard Italian. It is not an incredibly diverse society, and yet a lot of people are terrified. Now, that's not solely an invention of um, the media and the politicians, but there's certainly a huge amount uh, of the fear that is out there and the rage that, that we see in some of the people voting for these uh, anti-migrant parties, which has been pretty much concocted as a political operation, because it's not the result, in most cases, of direct actual experience of problems linked to migration. Um, there is, um, on for Brexit, for example, there's work out there that shows that the uh, extent of austerity measures since 2010 is a much better prediction a predictor of the vote for Brexit than presence of migrants. And I think that pretty much tells the story. Okay. Further questions? So we have one at the front. Do we have someone up there? No? Yes? Um, and then the man at the back. Uh, and, yeah, the guy with the white shirt. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, especially with the, in the UK, um, do you think there was a, an effect um, of new Labour being in power 
during uh, 2008, which made people now less um, comfortable voting for a party that was in government during the crisis and is now proposing to solve the crisis. I, and it's kind of um, concentrated in the UK, but mm. especially with them, sure. with New Labour moving right, do you think that affected people's trust in, yeah. in Labour as a, as a force? Do you think there's a correlation between where people are sitting on Maslow's hierarchy and the level, the anti-system votes? The what hierarchy? Maslow's hierarchy, oh, okay. so more insecure, less, more security. Yep. Yep. And, yeah. uh, I love uh, what you said about the anti-system um, uh, parties has been about economic policy and social policy. It was my understanding that there was recently some polling in America that was favouring almost people voting for more authoritarian style of government mm. because current politics has been so messy uh, and, and kind of getting nowhere. Um, do you think, therefore, that there's a danger of uh, anti-system politics becoming uh, even more fundamental in terms of actually trying to restructure the way that a lot of our democracies work? Yeah, thanks. Um, on New Labour, um, one of the things that you see in terms of the political response to the crisis was in the countries where the crisis was really bad, whoever was in power at the time got it, right? They, so it was Labour... Uh, here, it was the socialists in Spain, but uh, in France, it was Sarkozy, right? So the first round of elections after the crisis, you get, let's vote for the opposition. So here it means let's vote for the conservatives, although they didn't get a majority, but, but, but they, they, they managed to, to win power. In Spain, they voted for the Partido Popular. In France, they voted for the socialist Hollande, and I remember seeing his uh, exception speech, and he very proudly says, uh, Je suis Francais, je suis socialiste. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, maybe you're going to have a socialist response to the crisis. This, this could get interesting. But, of course, very, very quickly, Hollande went you know, down the same route as trying to cut the deficit, cutting social spending, um, cutting taxes for high earners, uh, labor market reforms which made employment more precarious and so on. So, so this, is the, this has been the pattern. So in Britain, the cycle has worked that particular way, but in other countries, it's worked the opposite way. And whoever happens to be in power at the time gets blamed, partly because there doesn't seem to be any particular pattern between a party being in power and the kind of policies that were followed, because they were following much, much the same policies. And yes, that affects trust in parties. And I didn't really talk about that much, but clearly people who are voting for anti-system parties have given up on the established parties. They don't trust them to make a difference. They don't trust them to, to represent them. I mean, in terms of uh, the hierarchy of insecurity, I mean, the problem here is that the Nor uh, Pippa Norris of, of Harvard and, and Ronald Engelhardt have written a very good book on, on, on this, and they wrote a few articles on this too. And their argument is that, you know, the, when economic prosperity is there, people um, uh, tend to uh, take more sort of generous uh, uh, political positions on, on social cultural issues. But when times get hard, they become much more focused on their material well-being and protecting themselves against threats. And that certainly follow, you know, that makes some kind of sense. But um, it is also true that in some cases people voting for anti-system parties are not necessarily the people most exposed to the threat. So it doesn't follow um, automatically. I mean, in the end, it depends on the way in which politicians try to mobilize people around political projects of opposition to the existing system. And if you're trying to attract um, you know, a particular kind of electorate, Older, less educated voters, for example, which is a typical electorate usually of the anti-system right in, in, in most of Europe, then usually talking about 
um, social authoritarian kind of positions, talking about immigration is going to work. But if the people most exposed uh, to the crisis are younger, so in southern Europe, youth unemployment is a colossal problem. Immediately after the crisis, there were no jobs for anyone who was not already in one. In southern Europe, and, and older workers are very protected in the labor market, on the whole, less and less so. So younger voters were the most exposed. But of course, an anti-system party saying it's all the migrants' fault and we should bring back hanging is probably not going to prosper against those, uh, uh, amongst those kind of voters. So my argument is more that you know, you're going to tailor your ideological appeal to the voters you're trying to, to capture. Are we heading back for a dictatorship? Um, you're referring to Yasha Monk uh, and um, Roberto Fagantis Foa. Uh, his work, I think, in the Journal of Democracy. I've read critiques. I haven't seriously looked at the data myself. I've read critiques suggesting they seriously exaggerate uh, uh, the pattern and that we should probably not be concerned that there is a broad pattern in public opinion of a move towards authoritarianism in, in terms of people's values. However, maybe that's uh, not the safeguard we would like it to be. If we look, look at some of the people who have been elected to positions of power, by uh, our voters. So American voters may or may not be becoming more tolerant of the idea of a strong man who breaks all the rules, but the person they elected to the White House, albeit on a lower popular vote than his rival, um, is somebody who clearly, in a lot of the things he says and a lot of the things he does, has you know, limited respect for sort of liberal democratic values. Okay, thank you. Um, so we have a question with the right. You had a question, yes? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the man in the blue shirt, um, then Valtrell, uh, the woman in the, yeah. And do we have some, yeah, and the, uh, okay. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> As you said there, the President Trump, in the name of the protecting the employment, is fighting the hard war, hard, a trade war with China. If we choose one of the most influential anti-system figure, must be President Trump. My question is that if we couldn't find some, some, something to counterbalance the anti-system power, can that be endangered the world, or world order? Thank you. Jonathan, my question would be, how can you explain the low voter turnout in some of these elections? I don't remember anymore how it was in the U.S. You probably know because you worked on the case study. But in the recent European elections, I mean, what shocked me was 37% voter turnout. When the mainstream parties are polarized and you have these extreme uh, positions on the European membership and people don't bother to go to vote. I think there's also a problem with voters, frankly, not just with yeah. the parties. So uh, referring to the two-stage process that you talked about, about how people basically um, punished the incumbent and then they went for, for radical left in southern Europe, uh, do you think there is a new pattern or a new trend thinking prospectively about uh, this radical left uh, um, party suffering in the case of Syriza, in the case of Podemos, and in the case of uh, the Five Star Movement, that it's not really a radical left, or there is a big discussion on that. Uh, do you think there is, there is something to do with that and the new emergence of, um, of these radical right parties once uh, the economics overall is doing a bit better? 
And to what extent do you think that social democratic parties uh, are going to be able to, the Partido Dem the Democratic Party in Italy or PSOE, are going to be able to um, build this kind of new coalition that everyone thought that it was impossible to, to build anymore in very complex uh, advanced democracies? Okay, thank, thank you very much. So I'll, I'll go backwards, I'll, I'll take that first. Um, so in Spain, for those of you who have not been following, there have been elections, the Socialist Party did uh, reasonably well, having taken power and tried to, to form um, a majority with the left anti-system party Podemos. Um, and the Socialist Party result was terrible in historical terms, but pretty good compared to recent uh, years when, when they were really in the doldrums. And um, Podemos, the anti-system left party, lost votes in, in the last election, performed poorly. So does this suggest that, you know, a pattern whereby if the Social Democratic or Labour Party, the mainstream left party, moves to the left to try and meet this demand for some kind of difference, that actually they're going to basically steal support away from the, the anti-system left. Um, in Portugal, the socialists also made the same kind of move. Uh, they've also preserved their vote. Um, and Labour, until last week, I could say had done pretty well by shifting to the left. Of course, last week's uh, result was terrible for Labour, but their result in 2017 was the best vote share and best total number of votes for Labour since 1997, the heady days of Tony Blair's first electoral victory. So, you know, you can make some kind of case that social democratic parties are more likely to hold on to their votes if they tack to the left and try and meet these demands. And that would make perfect sense if what I'm saying is that anti-system parties are rising because the mainstream parties are not, um, are not matching what, what, what people are looking for. This does kind of suggest that, you know, the answer is to meet the populace halfway, if you like, you know. Um, and I'm much more happier, uh, much happier about that in the case of the anti-system left than of the anti-system right. But if you want some evidence for the other side, the Social Democrats in Denmark, who have apparently opted a, adopted a very hard line on immigration and on integration, also their vote held up pretty well. So uncomfortable though that makes me, because I uh, try to be quite socially liberal on these matters, uh, the fact probably is that if 30% or 20% of people are voting for an anti-system left or anti-system right party, and the mainstream parties say, okay, we've got to you know, give them a little bit of what they seem to be asking, it does kind of seem to work. And it's a reversal of this trend towards convergence of the parties that I, I was talking about earlier. Um, Valtrad's question uh, is very important. I probably should pay more attention to that, and I didn't. Um, but certainly turnout in the cartel party era, the era of party convergence, turnout was declining. In some cases, it's revived with anti-system parties, uh, but not always. And you're right that the European Parliament elections uh, were not a spe spectacular increase in turnout. The US case is a bit ambiguous. It was rising again in the, in the Obama years. But in the UK, our turnout collapsed. I mean, the UK, I'm probably using the UK case a bit too much to inspire my thinking here. But uh, turnout in the UK was reasonably high, 70-odd percent, until the mid-1990s. Tony Blair was elected leader of the Labour Party in 1994, Okay. Um, you have this colossal collapse in turnout. Already in 1997, turnout was down on 1992. In 2001, it was further down. In 2005, I think 59% of people voted in the election in Britain, and Tony Blair won a majority with 35% of 59%. I mean, it's no wonder people are, are angry at the politicians if most of them didn't actually vote for the people who are governing. Never mind what, um, what they're actually doing. So that's clearly, I mean, I see it more as maybe a symptom than, 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 than a cause in itself. 
Um, but yeah, I should probably get my story straight on, on, on turnout. Uh, as for the trade war with China, I have to kind of say, well, this is not really uh, um, my area of expertise. I mean, I do pay some attention to this political economy literature, which talks about trade shocks. And I think, you know, for the U.S., there is strong evidence that, um, you know, some of the shift in support towards the Republicans when Trump came along as candidate can be connected to the trade shock as the result of Chinese competition, which has uh, affected some industries. And in the UK, and, uh, and Piero Stanage and, uh, and Colantone have also written papers on not only the British case, Brexit was predicted by areas most exposed to uh, foreign competition uh, in trade competition were more likely to vote Brexit, and also there's some evidence across Europe for that as well. Certainly Northern Italy, for example, hugely damaged by Chinese competition, and Northern Italy has actually voted for the anti-system right, contrary to my essential thesis about Southern European dualistic welfare states. So clearly this is a big part of what is going on. Um, um, I don't have any solutions for it, so please don't ask me. Okay, so we can take three further questions. Yeah, so the woman in the pink shirt. No, white and pink. <laughs> um, the woman at the back. Do we have questions up there? And, yeah, the, the man with the green shirt. So, yeah, let's start here. Um, you were speaking about uh, disenfranchisement with the mainstream media, and I was wondering if you could if you could identify a relationship between um, anti-system party support and uh, not necessarily access to, but sort of opinion of and engagement with the mainstream media? Hi. You've, you've pointed towards um, the financial crisis as a um, kind of indicator of, um, of a kind of the phenomenon of um, anti-system anti parties. Um, I was just wondering, considering that um, financial crises and recessions and so on are kind of an integral part of the capitalist system, how would you respond to the claim that the so-called phenomenon you're talking about is just kind of part of the cycle of our economic system as it is? And then uh, the woman at the back with the green shirt. Hi, uh, going back to the, the you know, center left that collapsed massively in so many countries. So how long do you think it's going to take for those ex-mainstream parties to, to recover and to, to realize that it was about economics and sort of, uh, yeah. Another question is why are, we, are, are they not able to call out uh, that it's not about immigration? So mm -hmm. why are we failing this language battle day on day? Okay, why are we failing the language battle? Um, maybe they have the best lines. I, I, I don't know. I think I, there is one. Uh, there is there are lots of things going on here that I, you know, I've tried to tell a fairly kind of buttoned-down story about what's going on. There's a huge amount of stuff going on that can't really be accommodated by the relatively, you know, reduced uh, uh, theory that I've got. Uh, and part of that is, you know, how politicians use language and how that connects with the media. So there's a question uh, about, about, you know, the way in which people use media and how that makes them more or less likely um, to vote for anti-system parties. I don't think we know enough about that 
yet, actually. And I think, um, and I'm not particularly equipped to, to do it. I think it's a very interesting story. Why is it? I mean, for instance, I could talk to you about my Uncle Bernie on Facebook and some of the stuff he posts is, uh, on Facebook is absolutely terrifying. Clearly, he's been targeting all your algorithms are throwing all of this stuff about Muslim pedophile rings at my Uncle Bernie, and it's sending him crazy. Um, you know, I think there is something going on there. I prefer to see that as being a sort of more superficial aspect of what's going on, but probably we, we shouldn't dismiss it. Either way, I'm not sure um, I would know what to do about it. Clearly, if politics is going to be fought in, 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 uh, in diverse forms of media, then politicians have to get equipped. I think one of the most interesting things about the Corbyn phenomenon in, in the British Labour Party is actually... Um, they seem to be pretty smart at, at using social media. I see some of their stuff. The algorithms, you know, don't send me Uncle Bernie's stuff. They send me Momentum stuff. And I look at this and I think, yeah, I could see how that works. Um, so, but I would guess that, that those technologies are available to all kinds of political parties. So they shouldn't necessarily bias in favor of any, any particular type. Yeah, I think why does the centre-left not call out, you know, what I would consider to be the huge misrepresentation of migration? Um, you know, I think probably a lot of the time it's not wanting to run the risk of alienating voters that they think have kind of lost to this discourse. They've, they've lost the argument and they don't want to try and win it again. And I think there is a connection here with demography. There's no getting around the fact that there are very strong generational uh, aspects to some of what is, is going on, okay? And, you know, my daughter grew up here in London, went to a state school and mixes with people from all kinds of backgrounds, and she's totally relaxed about migration and diversity. My Uncle Bernie isn't, you know? Um, and, and I think some of the time politicians maybe need to be courageous, but I think what they also need to, be do, uh, need to do, if they're smart, is to change the conversation, you know? Because it's true that sometimes come across with sort of left liberal positions on migration, you're just going to, some people are just going to stop listening. Maybe you can get them to listen to you if you're making strong claims about how you can make the economy work for more people, how you can protect them from real threats rather than the imagined threats that they're worried about. And maybe, and the underlying sort of thinking behind what I'm, what I'm uh, writing about here is that if society was fairer, better organized, more prosperous, if we were solving problems, if politicians appeared to be acting in the interests of people, they wouldn't be so tense. They wouldn't be so stressed out. They wouldn't be so ready to see enemies behind every corner. I would prefer to think that a more, co you know, a fairer uh, society would be more cohesive society. That might be fanciful, and the evidence from Scandinavia doesn't necessarily suggest that it always works. Um, but, you know, I think that's probably the nearest we, we can get to a, to a strategy. Um, finally, last question, you know, is this just part of the economic cycle? Well, it is if you don't bother trying to regulate capitalism properly. Um, but what, I mean, the first chapter of the book deals with this, you know, a century's worth of experience of democracy coexisting with capitalism tells us that when democracy doesn't manage to govern capitalism to make it work for people, then democracy and capitalism are both at risk. Um, the financial crises, not only 2008, but 1998 and the uh, early 1990s and so on, they are the result of a particular 
pattern of a particular way in which the global economy has been organized. The world I grew up in was a world in which there weren't financial crises. You know, I grew up in, in the, you know, I was born in the late 60s, grew up in the 70s. There were no financial crises then. And there were no financial crises because the global economy was managed in such a way that capital couldn't fly around in microseconds from one economy to the other, sloshing about and, you know, throwing people's lives up in the air. And every now and again, experiencing colossal breakdowns that politicians have proved really ill-equipped to, to manage. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually an anti-capitalist. I mean, I kind of am, but I kind of think we're, we have to put up with capitalism. It can be made to work for people, and we've got to try and make, it, make, make that happen. But you can't make that happen without functioning democratic institutions. And political parties that are not espousing extreme views are the only way to make those democratic institutions work. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much, Jonathan. So increasing political contestation is the big cure. Uh, let's, parties should contest the economy much more yeah, and not. absolutely. Right, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you very much and thank you for coming and asking all of these insightful questions. Thank you. Thank you.